and welcome to another interview with In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Simon Brown, a host of the podcast and PhD candidate at UC Berkeley, and today I'm speaking with William Sewell Jr., the Frank P. Hickson Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus of Political Science and History at the University of Chicago. We're discussing his new book, Capitalism and the Emergence of Civic Equality in 18th Century France, out from the University of Chicago Press. The book traces how commercial capitalism made it possible to imagine a society without formal distinctions in old regime France in the decades before the revolution decisively abolished them. We discuss commerce and anonymity in the public sphere, philosophers and the career open to talent, and the popular appetite for books of political economy on the eve of revolution. So you present your argument about abstraction and the challenge to a society of orders as a contrast with Tocqueville's influential account of bureaucratic abstraction in the French state, which set the stage for the revolution and then for Napoleon. Can you talk a little bit about what Tocqueville means by bureaucratic abstraction and, and how you take that narrative to work? Um, yeah, um, I, I, he doesn't actually talk about, I mean, he talks about abstraction a bit, uh, but his, his main term is uh, actually a bureaucratic despotism. Um, and uh, um, so his notion is that uh, the, um, under the old regime, particularly in the 18th century, um, you get this, this um, uh, form of, of uh, despotic government. Um, and uh, basically what the despotic government is attempting to do is to make more uniform um, France, which is, is uh, you know, constitutionally in all kinds of other ways, an extremely diverse place. Um, the different provinces have different relations to the crown and so on. And, and uh, part of what the, um, uh, much of what the um, crown is attempting to do according to Tocqueville is to impose a kind of uniform order on all of France. Um, and uh, part of what that does, of course, is it, it, um, it basically pairs back the powers of aristocratic bodies um, of individual aristocrats, of uh, corporate bodies and uh, advantages and so on of all kinds, and tries to make everything all the same. So that in a sense makes, uh, makes uh, the society more abstract uh, indeed. Um, but uh, the, the mechanism that, that stands behind it is, uh, is what he claimed is a universal uh, desire uh, for those in power um, to impose their will upon um, the, the population. Um, and uh, I, I don't see that as really what's going on. That is, I think he does a, a, a fabulous job of, um, of indicating the all kinds of subtle ways that, um, that French society is rendered more uniform um, by the, uh, uh, the extension of power of the, the bureaucratic power of the, of the monarchy. My sense of what's going on actually in the, mon in the monarchy is quite different. Mm -hmm. um, that is, rather than there being this universal desire of those in power to impose their will on all and to, to um, um, in that way, um, make everything uniform, mm -hmm. um, instead, what the monarchy is really up to is trying to figure out how it can raise 
enough revenue uh, to keep the machine running. Um, and uh, doing that um, requires uh, figuring out ways to, to start imposing taxes on those who have in one way or another been able to escape taxation. Um, and so there are, there are uh, that may be uh, um, exemptions and so on. Obviously the most, the, the most important and uh, best known is uh, that of the aristocracy um, who are not supposed to be subject to tax. Uh, in fact, they did get taxed eventually, but um, the, uh, the tie, which was the, uh, initially the biggest tax, they were exempt from right up to the French Revolution itself. Um, um, anyway, uh, so so I think I think that was actually the um, the motivation um, of the of the monarchy, rather than a, a desire uh, for 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 power, um, and that puts things in a in a in a quite different light. Uh, it seems to me. Right, and so that's one way that your your story um, sort of parallels. Tocqueville's though differs from is that you, you locate some of these tensions in the 17th century uh, with, with Louis XIV. And one thing you talk a little bit about is the, the sale of venal offices that happens in the late 17th century. It's right. kind of an early erosion of some of these distinctions. Can you talk a little bit about why that would be a tension for a society of orders? Um, yeah, that's a that's a very complicated affair. I mean, the uh, uh, the selling of offices goes all the way back uh, in, in on in large scale, at least to the middle of the 16th century. Um, and uh, uh, in the in the early 17th century, it gets sort of regularized. Um, and uh, when offices are sold, the, the at least for the high offices. Of those who buy the offices, who are for people who have money, um, but uh, and uh, that means basically uh, people engaged in commerce. It's basically merchants um, who are buying these uh, these offices, um, and uh, they uh, they both get to perform the offices, um, and at least um, after one generation, in, in the, once they enter the second generation, the office. And it was the second generation. The holder of the office has uh, has a transmissible nobility. Mm -hmm. So part of what this does is it it, it brings up a new a new set of uh, of nobles. Um, and um, I, I, I'm not sure um, what it what the, the point of your question was though about. Um, I mean that's the, that's basically what uh, what happens, and nobles keep being uh, new nobles keep being uh, manufactured, uh, as David Bien puts it, uh, right up to the French Revolution. Uh, right. Their constant sales of, of offices. It's for, from the point of view of the state. It's basically a means of raising revenue. That's the whole uh, the whole bit. Um, right, and and I think you know I think what's interesting about that story. Uh, is that it gets, it's a great encapsulation of the, the broader narrative you're telling about more opportunities for commercial transaction insofar as these are titles that can be bought right. and sold um, to raise revenue for the state. So I wanted to ask a little bit about 
Yeah, but let, let me say that I think the, the, the question of the of the sale of offices is uh, is kind of peculiar in that respect, mm -hmm. because, yes, uh, it is making it possible for people who have no noble background and uh, um, who by birth are commoners, but have gained a lot of money um, to get prestige, but they get prestige by entering the nobility. Um, and once they're in the nobility, they really care about nobility and about their privileges relative to those who are not yet nobles. Mm. Um, so it, on the one hand, it, it introduces a kind of uh, commercial logic in some ways um, to, the, uh, to the society. Uh, but those who, who take up that possibility then become defenders of the society of orders. Um, so, so it, as I say, it's, it's a very complicated affair. Yeah, yeah. And it's like a recognition that for the people participating, the commercial logic is not a threat to it, even though they're the ones, yes. you know, who are, who, are, who are treating it in a very new way. Right. I mean, one of the things that indicates is, is, uh, is how, how valued nobility is mm -hmm. in the in, uh, 17th century and 18th century society. That is the pinnacle. And if you're a noble, you are a special kind of person, um, even though in some ways, you know, your taxation isn't, your tax advantages aren't as great as they had been um, uh, by the late 18th century. They're not as great as they had been earlier. Um, still, you have, um, you have social recognition. Um, you stand at the top of the, of the social order. Um, and then the other thing, of course, is that, is that um, the state itself is basically staffed at the highest administrative levels um, by these former bourgeois or former bourgeois families um, who uh, purchase nobility. Um, so the uh, those who are um, um, engaging in the so-called administrative despotism um, are themselves those who have have bought offices or whose um, ancestors have bought offices right right and that and that differs somewhat from Tocqueville's argument which is that it's the nobility who are kind of the bulwark against the despotism right like the for him it's like they are the the people whose privileges are being threatened by by this despotism is that sort of right yes yes mm -hmm. that's that's right um, I mean, you know, he he was a, he was a a, a sword noble himself, um, and uh, in, in many ways, his uh, I mean, he was only born at about the time of the revolution, so uh, he was no longer officially a noble. Right. Um, but uh, but you know, he he still he still lived that kind of life. Um, mm -hmm. Had a, a a very nice castle, which I've seen in uh, in Normandy. <laughs> Um, so, so, so his point of view is very much the point of view of, of the, the old nobility. But of course, modernized in ways that many Tocqueville scholars have, have gone into. And, you know, I'm not a Tocqueville scholar, but. Uh, yeah, so that's in, in your description of, of some of these commercial transactions um, and, and the increasing opportunities for commercial exchange. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you see these kinds of commercial interactions affecting what people said about the emergence of publics in the 18th century in France. Um, so you talk about people like Habermas, who talks about the emergence of a public sphere, but you want to kind of 
emphasize the extent to which these publics are grounded in specific kinds of uh, purchases and commercial interactions and how in these new opportunities, especially urban opportunities for sociability, um, purchase and exchange is so central to them. And you yeah. talk about how that affects what the, the, the feeling of these publics are like. Can you talk a little bit about how places like, uh, you describe restaurants and theaters, can you talk a little bit about what this, this new commercial interaction looks like in those places? Yeah, it, it varies a lot from one place to the other. The uh, theater, for example, has a kind of hierarchy of those who are in the boxes and those who are who are on the floor. Um, it, so there's more hierarchy in theater. Um, restaurants, well, restaurants are, are they're very peculiar uh, institutions at the beginning. Um, they're, uh, they're called restaurants because they're for restoration of health. And initially, they basically sold these, uh, these broths um, so people who came to the restaurants were those who were uh, feeling out, you know, sickly and out of sorts and so on. Of course, the restaurant got transformed, uh, particularly in the 19th century, but was already happening uh, in the 18th century. But um, in the 18th century, it's still a relatively marginal institution. Um, most people who ate out um, would uh, do so at the table d'hôte, the host's table. Um, and uh, and there uh, there was a there was a single plate and people all took the uh, things off the plate um, and uh, they engaged in conversation with each other and so on. In the restaurant, they sat at separate tables. They ordered from a menu. They didn't interact with each other, so it was very abstract mm -hmm. by comparison with the with the old means. I think in some ways the um, maybe the most important of the the commercial institution probably is the cafe. Hmm. Um, it's in the 18th century that the cafe becomes um, uh, this, this extraordinary institution. Um, there, are, there are hundreds of them in Paris and uh, come into existence in the 18th century. Um, and uh, the, the, the culture of the cafe as a, as a place where anyone can come in, sit down, order whatever they please, uh, talk to other people and not talk to other people, men and women, aristocrats, poor people, anybody who can, can come in and, uh, and pay the, the, the money um, is treated pretty much the same. Um, so that's a, that's a case of a quite ubiquitous institution um, that uh, you know probably 90% of Parisians in the 18th century had spent some time in, uh, in cafes. Um, that that uh, I think you know really did in significant ways shape the sense of what social relations might be, um, in part because it was it was anonymous, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, your uh, you could tell you know if you were a commoner in the cafe, especially if you was a a, a working man uh, or a working woman for that matter, because women as well as men could uh, could come to cafes. Um, you can tell if uh, someone who came in was of a, of a higher class, um, but essentially they did the same thing. They sat at a table, they ordered uh, a beverage and maybe a pastry, and uh, they chatted. They might stand up and talk to everybody, but so might you stand up and talk to everybody. So there was a, a kind of suspension of, uh, of, of hierarchy uh, mm -hmm. in the cafe, and, and that seems to me quite paradigmatic about the changes that were were taking place. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the centrality of that uh, of exactly what you're talking about it was manifesting as very in, in a very interesting way in your discussion about the the restaurant where um, prior to the I guess the later 18th into the 19th century, um, you wouldn't know what you wouldn't know the price of the things that you were ordering until the end. Yes. And so, but, but you right. know, with these new kinds of commercial spaces, it's kind of the first thing you encounter before you, you can enter it. And so the idea that this That's is a right. place for purchase uh, yes. is particularly salient, yeah. Right, yeah, and the other thing is that, uh, you know, if you went to a tabla d'hote, you probably went, you know, once a week or something like that. You were known to the, to the proprietor um, and, uh, you know, your what you were charged would would be put um, under your name, and uh, you know at some point you'd uh, you'd settle up. Um, so basically, you were uh, um, you were getting it on credit. Mm -hmm. um, whereas at the at the restaurant, um, you paid cash on the barrel head, um, and uh, you knew in advance exactly what each of the items uh, cost. Um, there was no separating out of the items in the cost with respect to the. Uh, um, to the table d'hote, you just you know you paid if if the, if the meal as a whole you know costs so and so much, um, then and there were eight people there, each would pay an eight, no matter how much they ate and what they ate. Um, so so this <laughs> there's a it's a very different place, all right. Right, right. Um, and so you know what these places that you describe uh, and and the the changing structures of them they it gives you a clear sense of this um the the new what would the term you used to describe the kind of new structures of feeling produced in this commercial society yes uh, the, right. the raymond williams term um right. and you say that uh it's the it's in the 18th century it's the philosophes who uh can articulate at a higher kind of more level of sophistication what those feelings are like um yeah. And so I wanted to ask you about the position of the philosophy in the 18th century, yeah. why it is that they take this particularly important role um, such that they kind of are the ones who can authoritatively describe what's going on. Yeah, uh, let me just say something more about, uh, about the, the, the sort of uh, shopping uh, aspect mm -hmm. of things. That is, um, one of the things that happens is that um, you get the, the creation of what people call publics. Mm -hmm. um, so um, uh, there, there would be, uh, you know, the public of a given store, the public of a, of a cafe, um, the public who uh, goes to the opera or the public who goes to a particular uh, theatrical performance. Um, so the, the, and the public was this rather abstract um, uh, let's say category of people um, that, that had no obvious limits. It had no, um, the only price of entry was that exactly a price of entry, that is, in most cases, you, uh, you, you had to pay to, to get in. Um, but um, uh, but you, it, you, get the, you get the development of, uh, of the public, and um, the, the term public becomes much more used and much more widely used for a wider range of, uh, of things in the, uh, in the 18th century. Um, and of course, eventually you get public opinion as well, so that uh, these publics um, are places that generate uh, uh, opinion. Um, but anyway, on to the to the, the philosophes. Yeah, the philosophes are, uh, you know, 
they're really a, a, a remarkable phenomenon, if you think of it. Um, you know, people like the, the, the philosophers that I, I wrote about in some uh, detail in this book, um, Diderot, um, the Abbe Morlay, and Rousseau, um, they were all from uh, absolutely obscure backgrounds. Um, they were from provinces. Um, their parents were, uh, were small businessmen, very small businessmen in some cases. Um, and um, they nevertheless rose to the, to the very top of the uh, intellectual pile in the, in the 18th century. And there's something really quite astounding about that, uh, that very fact. Um, and um, it, it, in some ways, it's still, you know, it's still a, a, a bit mysterious, it seems to me, um, that, this, that this could have happened. Um, and uh, I should say that the, the, um, the salons are something that pre-existed the philosophers, right? This, this was a, 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 an institution of sociability that, uh, that was formed basically in the second half of the 17th century. Um, basically nobles um, who, uh, who would get together and they would talk about various things. And they'd sometimes invite in someone who was not a noble, but who was remarkable in some way or another. Um, you know, uh, um, a, a great composer or, uh, or a literary figure and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, they would partake of the, of the society and the, and the debates and the, the good food. Um, I think what uh, the, the, this, here I want to say something about the great man in history, I guess, to, to refer to a really, you know, hoary notion. Um, that is Voltaire. Um, Voltaire uh, himself was, a, was from the upper bourgeoisie of Paris, so he was not one of these uh, people who came up from nowhere. And in fact, he eventually became tremendously rich, richer than most aristocrats. Um, but um, uh, he, I, I think it was he, um, he, some, he, uh, he had a, a, a very particular history. Of course, he, uh, he started out basically as a, as a poet and a wit um, and uh, his wit was aimed against the authorities in various ways. And so that got him exiled to England. Um, in England, uh, he became much more serious. Uh, he started reading, you know, Locke and Bacon and, and, uh, uh, and you know, the various English uh, authors um, got to know, uh, uh, he, could, yeah, he got to know Hume and various, various other you know, sort of English philosophical uh, figures. Um, and uh, he became a serious person. Uh, so when he came back to France after his, his exile, um, he already had the kind of panache um, mm -hmm. of being this fabulous wit, um, but he now became a serious man who actually uh, had philosophical ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and that I think kind of opened the way for, um, uh, for people from much lower down in the social order um, who may have had wit, but who certainly didn't have the kind of, uh, of elite education that, um, uh, I mean, they, they, all of these guys were educated for sure, uh, but they didn't have the same kind of elite education that uh, Voltaire had. Voltaire went to, I forget the, the famous um, um, 
Jesuit Academy in, in Paris where, you know, the, the aristocrats and, and uh, royal officials sent their kids. Um, so that was, that was he, he had the kind of uh, education that got him in touch with the sort of people who were in the Salon. Um, the Abbe Morellet and Diderot and Rousseau, not at all, not at all. Right. And I was so it's interesting because I was curious reading the the kind of biographical sketches you yeah. write of of these figures, um, the the extent to which they as kind of the the structures through which they can their talent can be expressed, how yeah. distinct it is from the clergy. Uh, I was interested yeah. because throughout when we think about the society of orders, you know, I think one yeah. is inclined to think about the aristocracy. But the, the clergy was also a kind of a, a, a form of social privilege. So I wanted yes. to ask about the extent to which the clergy did kind of propose opportunities for intellectual uh, articulation and uh, sophistication, uh, maybe before the time of the philosoph, or or uh, or if it interacted uh, with with that form of intellectual life. Yeah. Well, they um, of course they. Basically, the Jesuits are the key here. Um, they set up educational institutions in all the, the, the larger cities. Um, and, uh, you know, part of the reason for that is that they want to recruit future Jesuits. Mm -hmm. uh, and who do they want for that? They want people who are really smart. Um, and they, they educate them. Um, so many of these are people who come from the upper orders, but um, both Morley and, uh, and Dero. Um, went to Jesuit schools. That's how they got their starts. Um, so, um, but, um, and so if you went into the, the, I mean, the clergy of course was, uh, was there was a whole, a huge hierarchy within the, the clergy, um, but there certainly were um, uh, possibilities for intellectual life um, within the clergy. You know, if you made it to the Sorbonne, um, uh, there you were, you were, you know, taught very sophisticated stuff. Um, and, you know, not only the proper theologically acceptable things, but also the, uh, the, the pagans. Right. <laughs> um, and the, uh, and, and you have to know your enemy, you know, to mm -hmm. be an effective uh, Jesuit. Um, so the education there was really quite, uh, quite remarkable. But Yahweh Morale in particular has really interesting things to say about um, his his stint at the at the Sorbonne, um, where he hung out with uh, um, with uh, mostly with others who were uh, were of much higher social order and who were intended, you know, for the uh, uh, for the upper clergy. Mm -hmm. um, but they also shared the the same kind of skeptical ideas and uh, interest in science and philosophy and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so they're right there in the Sorbonne, which was, you know, the heart of the of the um, the, the censorship um, of ideas. Um, you had these people who were just completely wild. They were they were uh, they were reading, uh, you know, they were reading Locke and the other Englishmen, um, and uh, and thinking very very freely. Um, so there was uh, it's it's kind of paradoxical, I think, that these. Um, that these um, Catholic institutions, um, on the one hand, they made it possible for poor people to become, most of them, of course, 
became not philosophers, but became priests. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, made a decent living and had a good life as, as priests. Some of them were really smart and they became theologians. Um, but you also get this, uh, this sort of un uh, underside of the, the Diderots and the, and the Morales um, who become philosophers and who, I mean, although Morales was uh, himself an abbe, which means he, he was a, a, a priest, um, he had absolutely no religious interests. He was a completely secular character with respect to his, uh, his beliefs. Right, right. Um, and what- He cared about political economy. Right, and I, I, wanna, I wanna ask specifically about Morley and political economy in, in just a, a minute, but the one thing I was thinking about as I was reading about these various philosophers, um, and it's something you, you, you touch on, but I want to ask you more about it, is that, so in the case of Voltaire, he writes a kind of uh, famous, you, I, you call humanitarian defense of, of Protestants, um, Protestant, like Colas. Like then mm -hmm. there's um, Diderot who writes also in a kind of, you might say humanitarian way against slavery. And so yeah. I was wondering, do you think that there is a connection here where to the extent that there is more of this kind of abstraction across social ranks yeah. uh, that these thinkers are engaged in, do you see it as connected to what we would think of as a kind of a humanitarian sensibility for, for others of yeah. both religious and maybe racial lines? Yeah, I do think so. I do think so. I think that um, this, this notion of, uh, of a kind of emergent civic equality, um, if you were a, a philosophical person, as, as philosophers were, after all, um, it should be extended beyond just you know those whom you you know and who are part of your community, but to others. It's to all humans. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, so I yeah I think it I think it's uh, it's it's definitely it's like part of the package. It's part of what happens when people start uh, start thinking in this more abstract way about um, what human beings are, mm -hmm. um, the extent to which they are you know. At some level, all the same. Right. Um, yeah, um, which is yeah, much more abstract than thinking about them as those of, of good blood and uh, and those of of uh, of, of uh, bad blood. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the nobles as opposed to the commoners. There, there's a claim that they're, you know, sort of different races, and indeed the, the term race is used mm -hmm. uh, for the noble race. Um, that goes away um, mm -hmm. once you uh, you adopt this more um, philosophic type um, view of, uh, of of humans. That's uh, that's far more abstract. Right. And once you critique you know, one form of difference and one form of uh, yes. social distinction, it's easier to to be more critical of others. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so you, you mentioned uh, just a moment ago about Morley and, and political economy. And yeah. I wanted to ask a little bit about, about political economy and as a form, yeah. as an intellectual form. And one of the things that I found so interesting is that, as you said, books of political economy by the middle of the 18th century were more widely read than novels yeah. uh, among kind of the general reading public. Um, and I, I wanted to ask a bit about that because you talk about political economy beginning in the, in the later 17th century is kind of a form of state administration. It was a way of thinking yeah. about 
as you said before, how to raise revenue for the crown. Um, but if by the 18th century, just everybody is reading political economy and a general reading public, does that change what political economy looks like? Uh, does it take on different forms or, or, or what, how does it change as it becomes a popular genre? Yeah, um, well, it, it becomes a popular genre, you know, pretty much uh, at the time that, um, that the administrators um, uh, start picking it up. Mm. Um, so so there's, not a, there's not a lag in time here, um, but, but uh, uh, this is the, um, the, the Gournay circle um, that, uh, that is particularly interested in the sort of administrative questions. Gournay himself was, a, was a, a, an officer of the, uh, uh, the economic administration of the crown. Um, and um, uh, Turgot, who later became a famous philosopher who also became an, an administrator, uh, was a part of that circle. Um, and uh, a number of important administrators uh, some again, some of whom became um, um, you know, chief administrators um, uh, were members of that uh, that circle. So, so there, there's a uh, there's definitely a kind of administrative bias in their interest in uh, in political economy. Um, but political economic discourse was a lot broader than that. That was that was one form, and that continued, you know, right through up into the revolution. Um, uh, John Shovelin's book. He's the he's the person who came up with this uh, this figure of. It's not necessarily that more people read political economy; it's that more political economy books were sold. Uh. <laughs> titles were were titles were published. Um, uh. I don't know about the sales. My guess is the sales of uh, of novels uh, may have been greater. But in any case, um, political economy becomes this, becomes this very um, widespread genre. Mm -hmm. um, and it has many variants. Um, Shovelin, in particular, is is uh, interested in the uh, the discourse about the um, um, the luxury problem. Mm -hmm. uh, there are sort of two sides to the luxury debate. There are those who think that um, luxury is particularly uh, effeminizing the uh, the aristocracy. Uh, you know, they, they they worry more about the the quality of the buttons on their uh, on their waistcoats than they than they worry about um, agriculture um, or war, for that matter. Um, so they're becoming effeminized. Um, on the other hand, there are those who say, um, no, in fact, um, uh, luxury is a good thing because it. It, uh, it spreads out to the larger community, um, it softens morals, uh, it makes people more uh, sociable and so on. So there's a, there's a big debate about, uh, about, uh, about luxury for sure. And then of course you have the philosophs who are, uh, or excuse me, the uh, physiocrats who are particularly interested in, uh, in agriculture and have their own kind of cockamamie um, um, <laughs> scheme, uh, very uh, centralized. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, scheme that's a, in some ways a kind of uh, uh, project. Well, it, I should say it's 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 mainly the physiocrats that mm -hmm. um, that Tocqueville was reading, mm -hmm. uh, and the the physiocrats, um, you know, they really did want a despotism. Mm -hmm. uh, they officially, you know, they said uh, an enlightened despotism is really what uh, what French society needed. Um, 
but they they were only one among you know it was a it was a really kind of cacophonous uh, discourse of of political economy, um, right. and uh, I, I think that um, the 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 physiocrats were the the um, the best publicists I think yeah. among political economists, um, and I'm not sure that they were the most widely read, but they may have been. Um, but certainly, uh, political economy was a much broader affair than that. Right. Yeah, and I think your example of the the luxury debate helps get at just the the kind of the social um, how much how much political economy could encompass. It could talk about kind of broad questions about sociability and about mores uh, in such a way that it does not look simply like policy papers that that we might associate with it today um right. and and to, to that end i was interested in an argument i think it was more like gave about political economy um uh, when mm -hmm. he tried to say say that there should be kind of a freedom for printing in political economy right. precisely because it helps people understand the commercial society in which they live and it could also improve the revenues of the crown so i wanted to ask a bit about i mean is, is this is there an argument that it's the freedom of political economy as a kind of a particularly important discourse that becomes a, a wedge for free printing of other things, or um, is it still have this kind of like desp despotic quality you're talking about where it's associated with, um, with, with, with state administration and not necessarily broader issues of uh, freedom of printing? Um, yeah, well, certainly uh, uh, Morley, I mean, Morley was himself mainly a political economist, although uh, he also, wrote various, uh, you know, sort of uh, satirical critiques of, uh, of, of uh, society, um, you know, all sort of pushing in a more democratic uh, direction. Um, so, uh, you know, he was talking about specifically about uh, political economic discourse. My reading of, of Morley is that he really, he would say, um, yes, this is true about political economy, um, he says, you know, if if uh, if you if these things are not published, then people, uh, the political economists themselves, will just sort of have to invent it all the, themselves. And mm -hmm. those few people that they can talk to, if it's published, um, they can they can read the thoughts of others whom they don't know, um, and uh, and the result will be uh, greater sophistication. Um, new topics that will be uh, will be covered and so on. So he's really kind of talking about the advancement of the science of the mm -hmm. economy, um, and that that requires publication. Um, but um, the uh, the freedom to print, I mean, uh, the philosophers are in favor of that period. <laughs> they mm -hmm. are in favor of uh, freedom to print, uh, and they figure out various ways to get out stuff that. Um, um, that sometimes gets them sent to uh, uh, to prison for a while. You know, they spend time in the Bastille. <laughs> right, and I mean, I think that that's really helpful to help to get us kind of to um, the context in which we can then imagine the revolution at the end of the century. Um, and one one question I wanted to ask about was, um, I believe it's it's kind of the opening epigraph of the book is the section of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and right. Citizen. And there's a line, as I recall, it talks about social distinction and civic equality and yeah. says things like there should be no social distinctions except those that have a social utility. Yes. Um, 
and I thought it was a very evocative phrase. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the social utility would mean um, in the kind of the post-revolutionary period. Um, yeah, I think I think basically they're, what what they're talking about is kind of public office. Hmm. Um, that is, uh, the distinction between a citizen and someone who holds public office is a is a valid distinction because those who hold public office, you know, rise to uh, 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 to a, you know to a to a certain uh, distinction. Um, but what they're what they're against, I mean, what this is what this is doing away with is the notion that people are born to. Um, uh, a particular level of distinction. And that this goes all the way from the top of the society to the bottom of the society. And what they're saying is no, none of that, none of that happens. The only way you can gain distinction is by your own efforts, mm -hmm. right? So it's true that, uh, that you know, those who, who do important works um, can be rewarded by the government. Um, can be uh, uh, given various kinds of honors and prizes and distinctions. They're all for that. Um, but uh, it's, it's only what you do, not who you are, um, that makes you someone who is dis is, uh, uh, has distinction. And, and that fits so well with, the, um, uh, with what the philosophers do in the, in the Salon. Uh, because after all, you know, who are these guys? Um, you know, sons of sons of, uh, of of tailors and watchmakers and uh, uh, medical instrument makers and paper sellers. I mean, they're 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 nothing in the right. social hierarchy. Nevertheless, because of their intelligence and their public spirit and their willingness to to um, make their knowledge known to the public through publication. Again, public, public keeps coming up here, right? As in publication. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that, uh, that that is what um, makes them important mm -hmm. uh, for, the, for the society, um, is, is what they actually accomplish. Uh, and publication is absolutely crucial. And it's crucial for the career of the uh, of the philosoph as well. You know, these guys, uh, they come to Paris with, with nothing. Mm -hmm. um, they may get education there, that's the case with, uh, with both uh, Morley and, uh, and Diderot, um, who were, you know, came into the Catholic school system and in the case of Morley went all the way to the top. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, um, but they, that, you know, that, what did that give them? That gave them knowledge. Um, it gave them a certain superiority with respect to knowledge, but it gave them basically no social standing except what they could demonstrate. And how did they demonstrate it? Well, they could demonstrate it in the salon through uh, good conversation. And, you know, how you get admitted to the salon is a good question. Um, in the case of Morley, we know that he was first introduced to the salon of um, uh, Vincent de Gournay, the famous political economist, um, by Turgot, who was his classmate, mm. right? But Turgot was a was was a rogue noble. Um, so it's usually through someone superior to you that you get introduced into the into the salon. But once you're there, um, it's it's what you say, it's how funny you are, um, it's what good stories you can tell, 
it's how well you can, uh, can, can argue and engage playfully with others. Um, that's what counts. And then the other thing that gets you into this, this at all is, of course, publication. Um, so uh, and that's, where the, that's where the commercial side comes in. And it's absolutely crucial. That is how you can really establish yourself is by publishing good books. And once those good books get read, then everybody wants you mm -hmm. um, in, in, the, in the salon. Um, and, you, you can and then you, you know, what, what happens in the salon is also stimulating to you and it produces more good books. Um, so uh, uh, the, the career of the, of the poor person who goes into the salon, on the one hand, it's, it's, uh, it's completely dependent on publication. If there weren't publications, pretty free publications available, you wouldn't have these, uh, these the philosophers. Um, on the other hand, um, they're all poor. They have no money. Um, so how are they going to make their living? Well, they make their living partly through patronage. Um, and they get the patronage uh, from the people they meet in the salon. Mm -hmm. And here the, the classic case is Morley, who meets uh, uh, Trudin, uh, who is a, 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 one of the most effective administrators and most enlightened administrators of, uh, of the old regime. Um, and he becomes kind of his hired pen. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, so and and uh, and he actually accumulates a lot of money um, through his uh, his services um, to this royal administrator. Uh, he made practically nothing on his writings, although he published many many books. Um, but uh, the uh, the career of the of of the philosoph depended on a kind of balance which mixed quite a lot from one case to another uh, between publication on the one hand, commercial publication um, and, um, and, and patronage. So there's both, um, the patronage logic is in some ways an old regime logic. Mm -hmm. um, the publication logic is a capitalism logic. And those two get mixed together in really interesting ways in the case of the philosophers, which is part of why I was so fascinated by them. Right. And I think that's a very interesting parallel um, with the, the people we were talking about near the beginning of the conversation, those, those uh, merchants who say, who would buy venal offices, who, you know, use kind of new forms of capitalist exchange to get into an older form of social standing, and then passionately defend it, um, is kind of an interesting mirror with the philosoph, who in some cases depend on old forms of old regime patronage, and yet, once they're inside, they critique it intellectually. Yes, exactly. Um, right. And right. and the critique is picked up in many ways by a lot of the nobles. Hmm. You know, one of the questions is why why do the nobles want to be hanging out with um, with nobodies? You know, yeah. like Diderot um, or or the Abbe Morley or Rousseau. I mean, these these people are they're they're just dust from the point of view of the the social order. Um, well, you know, partly it has to do with um, the nature of noble sociability, particularly court noble sociability, mm -hmm. um, which is a very nasty business. You know, everybody is constantly, every, the only thing that counts is, is recognition by the king and um, the, the, um, the degree of nobility that you bring into the court. 
Um, and, and there's this constant jockeying, you know, for favor and for, uh, for uh, putting down those who are a little bit below you and kissing up to those who are above. Um, and I think, you know, there, <laughs> there was a time under Louis XIV, the, the, sort of the first half of his career, maybe more than the first half, um, when that was quite thrilling, I think, to a lot of nobles. Um, mm -hmm. But it got old. Uh, and uh, I think by by the middle of the 18th century, you had a lot of uh, a lot of you know very wealthy uh, nobles from very established families who thought you know the less I have to do that the better. Mm -hmm. I'm going to move to Paris. I'm going to buy a, a buy or build a, an hotel particulier in Paris um, where I can live uh, extremely well, um, and uh, I'll have a salon. Mm -hmm. Or I'll go to the salons of others, um, and uh, and and there I don't have to worry about you know who's above me and who's below me mm -hmm. because you hang your status at the door when you walk into the, into the salon. Um, what matters is are you good at conversation? Are you uh, are you a nice fellow? Do you laugh at the right times? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, can you engage in good quips? Um, and uh, you know can and, and if you're a host, um, do you serve you know? nice, nutritious dinners, uh, and maybe have musicians come and play. Um, so uh, so I, I think that it, it says something about the fragility, at least in the 18th century, um, of this, um, this noble form of distinction mm -hmm. uh, that um, when, it's, when it's placed um, under the supervision of the king um, at, uh, at Versailles, um, becomes kind of toxic, actually. Right. And these people want to de detoxify. Um, and one of the ways of doing it is, is to engage in this, this wide-ranging conversation about the arts, about philosophy, about politics, um, about science, um, and, uh, you know, just good fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that's a very elegant way of bringing us from the kind of the tensions of the old regime and the 17th century up through uh, the kind of the careers of the philosoph and ultimately, uh, as we said with the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, the kind of the actual principles embedded in the revolution. So I think that's a really helpful, um, and a really, really elegant overview. Um, so I wanted to ask though, before we end, if you could talk a little bit about um, what you're thinking about now and and what projects you might be working on. Um, yeah, I, let me just say something more about, uh, mm -hmm. about, the, about this book. Um, one of the things that really struck me, having worked through all, particularly through the stuff on political economy, you know, the mm -hmm. long section on political economy and, and, and public administration, um, is the extent to which political economy forms of thought and language are just pervasive in both in the right, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizens, and then in the the legislative um, uh, achievements of the um, of the revolution. Mm. Um, and uh, it's 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 really quite striking to me how important political economy actually was to the revolutionaries. Mm. Uh, and that's something that you know the the the. The previous generation, you know, the Francois Furet generation, and uh, the discourse of the uh, of the revolution through the 
the 80s and into the 90s, um, just didn't talk about political economy at all. That was not a part of, of the intellectual history uh, mm -hmm. of the revolution that they were interested in. Um, but I, I find that um, political economy is absolutely crucial to the way the revolution happens, uh, to the, um, to the, the uh, legislation um, mm -hmm. that comes out of the revolution, and to many of the struggles um, of the revolutionary era. Um, so so uh, it seems to me that, that political economy has to move to the center of mm -hmm. uh, thinking about the intellectual origins of the French Revolution. Uh, okay, so what am I working on now? Well, um, for a long time, uh, I think for the last you know, 20 years or so, I've off and on taught um, lecture course on the, uh, the emergence of capitalism in early modern Europe. Um, it's a course that in a way kind of combines um, economic history on the one hand. I was actually trained as an economic historian at Berkeley, as a matter of fact. Uh, and uh, uh, so it combines, uh, combines economic history, you know, what was actually happening on the ground and what were the economic processes um, that led to capitalism. Um, but it also sort of works through the kind of intellectual history uh, of, of thinking about um, the coming of capitalism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Marx and Faber and, uh, you know, various other, uh, other uh, figures. So, so I, I, it treats both the kind of um, intellectual historiography of the revolution, mm -hmm. or the course did, um, and, uh, and also, you know, what was actually going on on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, it's a bit of a juggling act. Uh, and it worked all right in a course because, you know, in a course, uh, if it doesn't work one day, you can start up again the next, and uh, nobody remembers. You know, they'll look back at their notes, but it doesn't really matter. Um, when you're when you're speaking sort of extemporaneously in a course, you're a lot freer than you are in a, in a, a book. So anyway, I'm thinking of um, you know sort of going back to my lecture notes um, and uh, and and you know trying to make this into, uh, into a book that does both those things. That is, gives an account of how I think capitalism came into existence um, and, uh, and also uh, a kind of critical account of the, the, the various uh, theories and explanations um, uh, that other people have, uh, have offered. Whether I can pull it off, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm 81 years old. Um, who knows how long my health and my, uh, my brains will last, um, but I'm having fun with it at least. Um, and for the time being, what I've, uh, I've been wrestling for the last, uh, oh, I don't know, nine months or so um, with, uh, with the case of the Netherlands, which I think is a really interesting case in the, in really, I would say the first capitalist uh, society. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, I'm, uh, I've, I've been doing quite a lot of reading and uh, writing about that, and probably at some point I will put together an article uh, about um, the place of the Netherlands in the, in the rise of capitalism. But it may happen, it may not. Well, I hope it does because it sounds fascinating. Um, and I, I, look forward to, uh, I look forward to hopefully reading it. And uh, Professor William Sewell, thank you so much for talking about your book today. Thanks, it was good fun.